everyone, Shirley here. Welcome to today's topic entitled, How the Government Really Evaluates Proposals. Despite much evidence to the contrary, there are still many small government contractors who respond to RFPs without any prior contact with the agency or conducting market research, confident that they have a good chance of winning. But there's more to it than casual contact with an agency and flipping through a website. How do you discuss requirements, features, and benefits of your offerings, propose adequate staffing levels, connect your proposal's technical management and cost volumes, tune into the evaluation culture of agencies, and avoid the myths that are so prevalent in our industry? In other words, how does the government really evaluate vendors' proposals and select winning bidders? To help explore this important topic, I reach out to Brian Lindholm, Managing Principal of Fed Savvy Strategies. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Shirley. It's fantastic to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Brian, tell our audience a little about your background and your company, Fed Savvy Strategies. I'm happy to do so. So thanks a lot for having me here. Um, yeah, so I, I've been in the, the government contracting space, you know, aka GovCon, for the better part of, oh boy, 25 years at this point. Um, most of that's been really in industry, business development, capture, proposal management, but really last uh, 15 years or so, I've been focused on doing nothing but marketing competitive intelligence, which is really kind of my day-to-day love. Uh, the business that started uh, 10 years ago, um, we are just completely laser-focused on market and competitive intelligence work. That's it. Um, and really, a lot of our clients, they know it's best from our black hat reviews and how rigorously we put people through those exercises, but also just how we do some really in-depth competitive analysis. Excellent. So let's begin our discussion with why it is important to understand the government's evaluation processes. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a hot topic. Um, it, it's really great um, to come up with solutions to solve the U.S. government problems. But here's the reality check. If you don't actually understand how they evaluate and what they evaluate, guess what? You're going to lose. Brian, let's discuss this topic chronologically. Long before you write a proposal, there are the business development and capture processes. What are some of the most egregious mistakes made by GovCons during these phases related to understanding their target agencies? Yeah, we could talk all day long about capture and BD process from customer meetings, solution development, et cetera. But that's kind of a lot of obvious things that people know about. Let's dig into a little bit more uh, about how actually these errors get made in the evaluation process. And there's two big areas uh, in which this happens. One is simply failing to be mindful of the actual evaluation criteria that's set forth in our RFP. And the, the latter part, which is related to it, is failing to study how the U.S. government customer actually does evaluation. And the latter is great because it helps to reveal trends in evaluation and what could score well or worse, what are some tripwires you're about to trigger with a specific agency. 
I want to clarify that understanding agency's evaluation criteria should be done ideally during the business development and capture stages and not wait until the RFP hits the streets. But let's assume that the RFP is dropped. You have written about the deadly sins in proposals submitted by bidders. Let's discuss sin number one. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Sin number one, your proposal will get loaded down with features but there's not any demonstrated benefit to the requirements. I love this one because it happens so often. Um, I hear this all the time during Black interviews when we review, we actually discuss win strategies. Now, capture business development teams will come up with some of the super cool whiz-bang solution that sounds really good until you ask the question, how exactly does this help me solve my problem? And better yet, how do you define or quantify the benefit of the solution? Evaluators aren't stupid. They're not going to read your mind. You have to be explicit in the benefits that are derived from the full feature of your solution. If you want to make that case, you better be direct about why the evaluator should like your solution, and then they will give you strengths. Now, the strengths, hence, they lead to higher ratings, which leads to higher scores, and then therefore puts you into a better position to actually win. I want to explore this a little, Brian, because what you are suggesting is not easy. Are you saying that proposals should state exactly how certain features of your solution will solve the agency's problem? And how do you express that when you're selling services? You do have to be explicit what you offer and state the benefits that they realize as a result of the future of your solution. It seems daunting, and it really is daunting, unless you just operate with a very simple framework. You know, the classic thing I was always taught was feature, benefit, proof, that simple sequence. And all too often, proposal writers articulate the feature of what they're offering, but they don't state why the reader should care and what they get as a result. State exactly what the agency gets. Otherwise, you're just spewing out jargon like if we're going to synergize your enterprise holistically in order to realize cost savings or other meaningless drivel. Evaluators have to have it explicitly spelled out, otherwise, they can't interpret it very well. And I would say, uh, Brian, that in addition to the why and the what, proposal evaluators are looking for the how. You should mark that part of your proposal as proprietary, of course, but the more detail you can provide within the page count, of course, um, the better. Now, sin number two is spending too much proposal space illustrating what you did for other programs. Now, agencies do value past performance, so why is this a problem? The, the problem comes from you're living on basically past glories, and you're telling the evaluator, hey, it's me, trust me. Evaluators, again, they're not stupid. They need to be convinced that you know what you're doing, which means you have to provide detailed explanations of what you're going to offer, especially going forward. Spending time talking nothing about what you did for someone else doesn't really convince them that you understand requirements and that you're just simply going to address it head on. Um, the spending of this time writing uh, about past projects is often done at the expense of describing what you're actually going to do going forward. Uh, oh, 
right, and tax performance is important, but it's very rarely a heavily weighted evaluation criteria. Uh, that's interesting. So can you give us an example? Absolutely. So there's a great example involving Booz Allen Hamilton. So they were the incumbent on a contract with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a.k.a. DITRA, to provide uh, advisory services on the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. So in August 2020, they lost to Noblis. Now, keep in mind that at that point in time, Noblis's footprint with DITRA was very small. But by contrast, Booz Allen Hamilton had robust experience at DITRA and a ton of past performance there. However, the challenger, Noblis, they won. Uh, this wasn't a simple loss, but one big theme in Booz Allen Hamilton's failed bid basically just centered around the theme of we're the incumbent, so don't worry, we have you covered. Now, Noblis didn't bid absurdly low. In fact, they were only about 1% different than Booz's price on a $250 million bid. But Noblis did a fantastic job of defining or articulating in detailed fashion with a value to DTRA. And you have to think about this. Why on earth would DTRA oust an incumbent over a 1% price differential? They're not stupid, but they saw the value of Noblis offered and Booz Allen Hamilton's vague claims, based on just being basically in the incumbent, just did not impress DTRA to keep them. That's a good example. I would add, however, that past performance is most relevant during the business development phase when introducing your company to an agency. They know you're not the incumbent and probably have not done work for their agency, but if you have performed well for others in an especially innovative way, it will grab their attention. It, it opens the door. And by the way, past performance can be in the commercial sector as well as the government sector. I get asked that question frequently. Brian, I've heard you say that cutting staffing levels can sometimes backfire. That seems counterintuitive, especially if agencies are seeking to cut their costs. Yeah, it's a tricky game to play. Um, it actually depends very much on the agency. Um, some are less interested in how you'll execute as long as you meet their objectives. However, others... They are very married to the specific staffing levels, even if you really could reduce staffing and you could achieve the same or better results. Uh, this goes back to the whole concept of agency norms and preferences. If you don't discover that behavior and you cut staffing to be more cost competitive, you might lose. You're right. It's a tricky game. And this is where knowing your target agency really pays off. And when you think about this from the government personnel's perspective, sometimes headcount equates to power. You recommend cutting their staff. You recommend cutting their power and influence, whether it is real or perceived. Exactly. Uh, so before you head down this path, cutting staffing, you would better figure out if this is a proverbial third rail or not inside that agency. Another sin is failure to connect your basis of estimate, your cost estimate, 
to your technical and managerial proposal volumes, which is easy to do if you have different people in your company working on different aspects of your proposal, right? Oh, yes. This is a big minefield. Uh, it gets worse when you're making revisions to your proposal as a result of discussions with the government. Above all things, connecting what your solution is versus the underlying pricing is critical because disconnects begin to unravel your credibility. Can you give us an example, Brian? Oh, yeah. What a whale of an example we have. Um, so many of you may have heard about uh, the DISA uh, GSMO, now GSMO2 uh, contract, gigantic uh, IT services contract with DOD. So GIT bid on this mammoth of a contract versus the incumbent WIDA. So in the evaluation of the bid, DISA actually hit both bidders with many labor rates that are believed to be unrealistic. So GIT started providing rationalization for the rates, but essentially they blinked in the game of chicken, and then they um, just simply adjusted rates upward to what they thought appeased DISA evaluators. Why does that do that? Instead, they decided, I'm going to double down with much greater justification that my rates actually are realistic, and that actually was a big contributor to their win for their recompete. I think the moral of the story here is that you can potentially get away with lower prices if you can justify how it's realistic and it connects with your proposal. So, by the way, Lidos won at $1.67 billion versus GIT's bid at $1.99 billion. Oh, my gosh. Those, those numbers are staggering, aren't they? Yes. And I love this example. Um, it's really fascinating because usually when the government says your prices are unrealistic, what they mean is that they are too low to realistically perform adequately on the contract. Sometimes these unrealistically low prices are offered by small businesses wanting to get their foot in the door at a particular agency. But strategically pricing a bid can be extremely complex because of so many unknown variables. So what are the keys to success in these circumstances, Brian? Yeah, and that's what I mean. But honestly, don't just jump to do more price increases or cuts just to appease them. You're really playing a bit of a game of chicken. Um, if you really want to stick to your price, you better make sure your BOE is absolutely airtight. And I'm not saying never to adjust the price. Just don't default to getting in to a peak. Brian, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Brian Lindholm, Managing Principal at Fed Savvy Strategies, about how federal agencies really evaluate proposals and choose a winning vendor. When we come back, we'll talk about evaluation tendencies in agencies. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growthmasters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, 
Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Brian Lindholm, Managing Principal of Fed Savvy Strategies, as they discuss how to adjust your bids and proposals to account for the government's often misunderstood evaluation process and guidelines. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about aligning the various parts of your proposal and strategic pricing. That's a good segue to talk about not understanding the evaluation tendencies of the agency. Some agencies are more price sensitive than others, right, Brian? Absolutely. Um, It's really imperative that you study trends in evaluations and figure this out. Sometimes best value trade-offs actually really do allow for price premiums, whereas in other cases, that premium is negligible. Assessing the trends in valuations will give you a much better and clearer sense of what the agency favors in technical management and pricing. How does one go about evaluating these trends in their target agencies? Well, the first and easiest step is really to use your own debriefs uh, with that customer to identify any trends. Otherwise, you can also use... um, the geo protest docket to begin to expand on this data set. We do this quite a lot. So, Brian, you're being very humble. There are a few companies in the marketplace like yours that specialize in this very complex but essential service of determining the evaluation trends of agencies. It requires collecting large amounts of data over a period of time, then analyzing that data to see those trend patterns. Let's take a look at another challenge contractors are facing. In the tight labor market in which we are operating right now, contractors are struggling to find and submit personnel who meet the minimum requirements of the solicitation. What have been your observations? Yeah, that's been a real challenge. I mean, the bidders have been uh, trying to push people through that they simply don't meet minimum requirements. Um, it's may be tough to meet minimum requirements, but if you don't get ahead of what the LCATs, the labor categories, are going to be used um, to influence the requirements and to be realistic, you're really going to get a weakness or simply not being compliant. And the latter part, that's a ticket to a loss. Do you know of any current bids that reflect this deadly sin? This happens surprisingly often. Um, an example... That, uh, that comes to mind is in 2020, uh, there was an FDA, Food and Drug Administration, budget acquisition and planning system uh, blanket purchase agreement. Deloitte uh, wanted the first, but then Guidehouse protested the win, which resulted in a reevaluation of the bid. As you dig into that more thoroughly, it was revealed that Deloitte had submitted key personnel that simply didn't even meet minimum requirements. What happened in the end? Guidehouse took that contract away as a result. So you have to ask, how could a business as mature as Deloitte make such a rookie mistake? Um, it's tough to say why they did what they did, but it did happen and they did lose. 
So the moral to the story is that if the agency doesn't notice that your key personnel don't meet the minimum requirements, a protest could cause them to take a closer look. Don't assume that the agency is not carefully examining your key personnel or that the procurement won't be protested, right? Right. I I think even beyond that, the bigger lesson learned here is you better have an airtight case for your key personnel to meet or exceed requirements or you better expect to get balanced out of the competition. Brian, what are your observations on why incumbents lose their contracts? Oh, boy. This would be a whole podcast by itself. <laughs> Good. Uh, I, I, think, um, I think incumbents very often get what I'll call stress fractures from patting themselves in the back. Um, I see this bias all the time in our blackout reviews. You know, incumbents assume that they're a special little snowflake, and nobody else can do the work, but <laughs> unless they emerge from the mother's womb and they won the contract upon birth, it's a pure nonsense argument. There are so many traps we could spend all day talking about, uh, some that come out more commonly than others if they talk more about what they did on the contract previously as opposed to emphasizing what they're going to do next. They live in the past. Another one is they fail to read the RFP and write to it. When I look at Section M, that's the one ring from Lord of the Rings. It rules them all. Answer the mail. Uh, Another one is thinking, I'll just trim my price a little bit and I'll win. Agencies are getting better and better at assessing value versus risk. Don't think you're not replaceable. Yet another one is assuming the evaluator knows what you can do. In other words, be explicit in your solution. Uh, if you think the customer loves you, it's going to carry the day. Get over yourself because guess what? You are replaceable. And then last but not least, and these easy ones, is don't think you can just cut your price a bit to win. Plenty of incumbents lose to higher price challenges, and they do so when the evaluators perceive the value in the new bidder. I see this all the time too, Brian, incumbent-itis, making assumptions that the client really understands your value proposition and relying too heavily on a personal relationship. And it's a shame because the incumbent does have a strategic advantage of being on the inside. They have customer intimacy. But if you don't learn customer empathy, which is different, you're likely to lose that contract sooner than later. And losing a contract can be so devastating to a small business that's highly dependent on that contract. Brian, you and I are both frequently asked which market intel or data aggregation subscription companies our clients should buy. What do you tell them? There could be some value in the convenience of your subscription tools. But if you think there's some sort of panacea of knowledge, think again. I tell people to focus on developing analytical skills. And we actually produce a course to do exactly this. Now, why do we do that? We don't have a data shortage. Data is out there. That's usually not the problem. The real problem is you have to train someone how to think, how to be crafty. And if we do so, they'll do circles around people that rely on databases or spoon-feeding data in your endless slide deck. There is no substitute for thinking, that's for sure. The final topic I would like to discuss are the myths 
that are repeated in our industry. Some are mindless, like you can't win if you don't propose, which I hate because you can propose yourself right out of business. Another one is that the key to winning is for your proposal to be technically acceptable and the lowest bidder. What are your thoughts on that, Brian? Yeah, I'm also not a fan of churning out gigantic numbers of proposals just to win something. Um, you know, we actually the blog on that very topic uh, to bid low and just be acceptable to address that mistaken belief. Now, part of this is agency price sensitivity really does vary. I wanted to test this hypothesis, so I grabbed um, an array of evaluations made by DISA on several of their contract awards. What was interesting, in about half of the instances, it was a really tight fit between winners and losers. Um, and in many cases, bidders who demonstrated a superior technical solution would actually get price premiums. Sometimes those premiums would actually get as high as 20%. Wow, that's really good insight, Brian. I hate it when a contractor says they lost on price. It's usually not price at all. It's about the value to the government. Any final thoughts or advice for our audience, Brian? Study your customers and study your competitors' evaluation and bid behavior. This is often a missing piece of a capture puzzle. It's hard work, but if you put in the time, you get results. And for goodness sake, stop assuming evaluators can read your mind. They can't spell out your benefits to them. Otherwise, someone else will do a better job. And guess what? They win. You're absolutely right. And I would add that being successful in the federal market requires leveraging resources, people, data, systems, and processes. You're not alone. Think, plan, grow, and prosper in this complex marketplace by using the expertise of others whose experience and knowledge complement your own. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience today. Hey, thanks for having me here, Shirley. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun for me, too. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Brian, he can be reached at brian.lindholm, that's L-I-N-D-H-O-L-M, at fedsavvystrategies.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelton Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Skelton Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's skeletomarket.com, with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.